Dr. Jeffrey Siegel, CEO and founder of Medical Justice, is a board-certified neurosurgeon. He was a practicing neurosurgeon for 10 years, during which time he also played an active role as a participant on various state-sanctioned medical review panels designed to decrease the incidence of meritless medical malpractice cases. We talk about his journey from neurosurgeon to pharmaceutical CEO to lawyer. He gives us a crash course on why patients sue and how to potentially de-escalate, how to deter expert witnesses and personal injury attorneys from choosing you as their target, and what clauses to be familiar with in our medical liability carrier contracts. We end on high-low agreements. Dr. Siegel holds an MD from Baylor College of Medicine, where he completed a neurosurgical residency and went on to a spinal surgery fellow at the University of South Florida. He has graduated with a JD from Concord Law School with highest honors. In the process of conceiving, funding, and developing and growing medical justice, Dr. Siegel has established himself as one of the country's leading authorities on medical malpractice issues, counterclaims, and internet-based assaults on reputation. He's also a partner at Bird Adato, a national business and healthcare law firm. With over 50 years of experience in serving doctors, dentists, and other providers, Bird Adato has a national pedigree to address most legal issues that arise in the business and practice of medicine. This is part one of two, with the second part coming out next week with Dr. Siegel. Do you feel overwhelmed by all of your different responsibilities as a partner, parent, and physician? Do you feel burned out or stressed out? If so, We want you to know that there is hope. Professional Coaching for Doctors has been shown to improve all of these problems. And right now, the Alpha Coaching Experience, a coaching program meant specifically for busy physicians who want to build a life they love and deserve, is open for enrollment. As part of the Fall Alpha Coaching Experience, we want to invite you to a free webinar being taught by Dr. Jimmy Turner over at The Physician Philosopher. The webinar is called Defeat Burnout Without Leaving Medicine. You can register for this free webinar by visiting thephysicianphilosopher.com slash webinar. There are only three webinars, and the last one is on November 1st. So don't miss out on getting some free teaching on how to coach yourself to become the best partner, parent, and physician you can be. Visit thephysicianphilosopher.com slash webinar for more information. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Jeff Siegel, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Great to be here, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. So why did you decide to go to law school? You, you're you a neurosurgeon, so that involves quite a bit of training, probably more training than almost anything. And and then you, you decided, you know what, why don't I do some more training and go to law school? How did that happen? Well, first and foremost, it disappointed my mother going through that process or having that dialogue. But I, I didn't do that directly. So my pathway has been long and circuitous. I had wanted to be a neurosurgeon for a number of years. My brother had a pretty significant injury when I was in my first year of medical school. Over time, he he had a really nice recovery, not a complete recovery. He still has significant deficits, but it certainly influenced me to go into the field. And it is, you're correct, a long journey. In any event, I was perfectly delighted uh, practicing clinical neurosurgery 
started off on the West Coast, then moved to a small town in the Midwest. My wife delivered twins. And when my son was age three, he was diagnosed with pretty severe autism and medication-resistant epilepsy. So that was a real hiccup in my life, our life, our lives. And uh, we knew we, or at least we didn't think we could get the kind of care that he needed in that small town. So we moved to a larger community. I decided to take a year off to focus on him. Then I planned to go back to doing what I knew how to do, which is practicing neurosurgery. In that one-year window, I was introduced to a a medicinal pharmacologist at University of North Carolina who had been working on a number of compounds that had actually been tested by a large pharmaceutical company and thought it may be relevant towards the treatment of my son's conditions. So I asked naively, what would it take to move these compounds out into the real world, knowing nothing about drug development? He said, well, you'd have to raise money and license the compounds, build a team, and so on and so forth. So um, we did that. We raised money, licensed the compounds, built a team, and moved these compounds along from preclinical to phase two, which is pretty far along on a shoestring budget. And um, five years later, we sold the company. So by then, there had been a large window of time. Although I'm arrogant enough to believe I could go back to the practice of clinical neurosurgery, I do not believe I could persuade a reasonable person to go under my knife again. So. Um, I had to figure out what was next in my life. And I had been sued one time for what I perceived to be a frivolous reason. The single expert who testified against me had actually been expelled from our professional society for delivering frivolous testimony. Yet uh, there he was um, on the circuit. Um, The case was dropped about two weeks before trial. I guess I should have felt as if I won something. I didn't. But I thought that was my next mission. And that was the beginning of medical justice. And then only later did I get a law degree since I was working with attorneys. So law school was never really in the picture until late in my professional career. Um, Like many things in life, uh, if you live long enough, various uh, and sundry things will happen to you and you have to figure out what the next step is. And moving into medical justice and uh, the legal world was a, a transition after the biotechnology world, which is a transition after the neurosurgical world. That's interesting. I didn't know that about you. I just assumed that that frivolous lawsuit led directly into law school, that that was the path, that, that, that being subject to that is what motivated you to go to law school. So is, is that what, I mean, not, it was a more securitous way, but was that the impetus to go to law school? Yes, it, it was. So okay. you're right. I, I um, took some detours along the way and I was certainly motivated by other things along the way. But ultimately what, what moved me, what persuaded me to go to law school um, ultimately was related to that single professional liability suit. And believe it or not, so I had actually been practicing in a, um, in a state that had implemented substantive tort reform, and it did so in the 1970s. Um, at that time, it was considered the Rust Belt. People were leaving to go to both coasts, um, and doctors were getting sued left and right. They elected as governor a physician, and he said, this must change. And so he spearheaded 
substantive tort reform made it a very attractive place to practice medicine. So from a medical legal perspective, I was living in a state that um, should have been a dream job, but um, I still got sued, again, for what I perceive to be a frivolous reason. Yes, certainly an influence in my life. But the rate of, of lawsuits seen by neurosurgeons is relatively high, even in a state, I guess, where it's 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 a much more pleasant and less litigious state because of tort reform. I think the statistics that I've heard about neurosurgeon neurosurgery specifically are pretty staggering. Like, if you look around the room, like one out of every four of you are being sued, or or even more at any given point. Yeah, no, you're actually pretty close with the stats. There was an article published in New England Journal of Medicine. It's now probably about eight or ten years old, talking about well, it did two things. First, it described. Um, how frequently a doctor will be sued in their lifetime, meaning that if you practiced age 60 or 65, how will you, will you ever, can you go your entire career without being sued? And if you practice a surgical specialty, the likelihood of you being sued is 99%, <laughs> at least once, quite high. If you're in a lower risk specialty, let's say family practice, the rate is still pretty high, 75%. Also, they described the frequency of being sued by specialty and neurosurgeons win. We, it's something we didn't want to win, but we, do, we did win. It's on the order of 20% per year. So that means every neurosurgeon has a 20% chance of being sued in any given year, which means that over you know, five years or so, you're likely to be sued at least one time, which means that if you practice long enough, the average neurosurgeon will be sued multiple times. Every state is different. Some states are uh, more, uh, well, they're healthier for, from a medical legal perspective. Other, state, other states are more challenging, like Southern Florida, New York, Illinois, mostly states with large metropolitan areas if, they, if the state has not implemented substantive tort reform. I think if the state is an attractive place to want to live, then they don't have to because the physicians will live there anyway. Yeah, they just bake it into the equation. Um, in many of those states, the physicians actually make a good living. Yes, they have to pay higher professional liability premiums. It just gets baked into the equation. Yeah. So tell us more about the origin story of medical justice. Like, how did how did you start that, and and what is it? What are the services that it provides? Medical justice is based on the premise that most doctors. Uh, when they are sued, rely upon professional liability coverage. It's an insurance policy. They buy, they pay their premium every year, and it plays defense. If and when you are sued, they will pay for an attorney to defend you. And if money is paid out, either through a settlement or judgment, it'll pay the bills up to policy limits. So it's a very standard formula. Almost every doctor has professional liability coverage. They know what it is. Most of the time, they know what to provide. Certainly, if and when you're sued, by the time you're finished, you'll know, you'll know precisely what, what it provides and also what it doesn't provide. So it's defense. Medical justice is based on offense. The idea of trying to hold proponents of merit, meritless lawsuits accountable in a number of different venues. So we pay the bills and perform the services to hold proponents of frivolous lawsuits accountable. That includes unethical attorneys, unethical expert witnesses, on occasion patients, but more often than not, it's the attorneys and expert witnesses that are held accountable. So we are the funding and service entity to make that happen. Your professional liability carrier plays 
defense, we play offense. There are other things that we do at Medical Justice, but that is the origin story. That's how we got started. But isn't that witness tampering? Can't you not go after them during the suit? Can't you not play offense during the suit? That's a great question. So we have we have calibrated how we do and what we do by when we do it. So what do I mean by that? It is true that if you were to threaten a expert witness while a case is pending, that it could be construed as witness intimidation or witness tampering. We don't want to do that, particularly if, you've, if you're defending a frivolous case. The last thing we want to do is turn a perfectly defensible case into a distraction focus. Oh, everybody's going after the expert. So we don't do that. We, we um, keep our powder dry until after the case is over. Once it's all terminated and the witness has had its say, we hold them accountable in, what, in a number of different venues. It could be the medical specialty societies. It could be the licensing boards. And for attorneys, it would be with a state bar and so on and so forth. There are other techniques that we can do, but by and large, these are implemented and executed after the case is over. Interesting. Interesting. So, so I'm part, we talked about this before the show. I'm a partner in ENT Allergy Associates. I don't really speak about my practice that much on the show, but um, because I'm not involved in the management of my practice, but um, being a giant practice, we we must fear, see our fair number of suits. So is there anything that you would recommend that we do in order to best protect ourselves from suits? What What can we do to play, aside from hiring medical justice, which you're making an excellent case for us to do right now, and just I appreciate do it. that. Just do it. When we're done, <laughs> just do it. Do it. <laughs> so, so if we were to employ you, right, what would you do for us as a large group in order to protect us from future suits? Like if someone were to take one of our, one of our positions in a, uh, in a frivolous suit, what are some examples of what you would do? So let's talk about the life cycle of a lawsuit because litigation doesn't come out of nowhere. It generally works its way up to a crescendo before it gets manifest with an attorney. So typically, it's at the breakdown of the doctor-patient relationship. Patient is irritated, pissed off, um, either due to, well, it's usually due to mismanage expectations. And that could be related to the process, you know, what they experienced. It could be due to their recovery or it could be due to their outcomes or it could be due to money. These are the big ticket items where there's a mismanaged expectation between what the patient thought was going to happen and what ultimately did happen. And they'll, they'll often make it known. They may yell or scream or have a strongly worded letter or email to the practice or to the doctor they may go online and post a rotten and scathing review about the doctor or the practice. They may up their gain and um, go to an attorney and have records requested. So you can see along the path, there are multiple entry points for managing this, for de-escalating the conflict. Next would be an intent to sue letter and then finally litigation. So none of this happens in a vacuum. By and large, if you interview a plaintiff attorney or any plaintiff attorney and they deal with professional liability, they will tell you most patients file lawsuits not for the money, contrary to popular uh, expectation. They file because 
they believe they've not been heard. They're looking for answers and those answers have not been forthcoming. So they just, they assume right or wrong, the doctor practice is hiding something. So if you remember along the continuum that there are multiple places where a patient will manifest their unhappiness, there are multiple places where you can actually work to de-escalate conflict. And we help to de-escalate conflict. So for example, let's say it's a matter of and let me give an example of a plastic surgeon. So a patient comes in to see a plastic surgeon, they have a procedure done, and there's a mismanaged expectation. The patient does not believe she got what she bargained for in terms of the aesthetic procedure and just wants their money back. You know, She's already expressing her anxiety, then may go online and talk about what a butcher Dr. Siegel was, he injured my face and you know, took all this money and wants to charge me another $5,000 to fix what he screwed up. You, you can see where this is going. And so there are a number of strategies to try and interact, communicate with this patient and see if there's, if it can be solved. Frequently, whatever is ailing the patient can be solved. Not always, but frequently there are ways to talk people off the ledge and ways that ultimately keep this from working their way to, to litigation. So, so these are the communication steps that can be done to de-escalate uh, conflict. But so does, it doesn't, doesn't does always that, work. Does that yeah. mean that all of your members communicate their adverse outcomes to you? It's pretty common. We are the first call many doctors make uh, because we've been at it for a while. Um, since inception, we've worked with over 11,000 physicians and they trust us. They know we have a great body of experience and our goals are similar to their goals. The goal is to see, can conflict be de-escalated? Often, yes. Always, no. But frequently, there are some very low-level things that can be done to try and talk everyone off the ledge or, or solve the patient's problem. Because, it come, like I said, it comes down to communication, comes down to process, outcomes, and money. These are the things that drive people uh, people insane and cause them to seek seek a lawyer. Something that you mentioned earlier was if you do get sued, then you will be much more familiar than your contract with your malpractice carrier than you otherwise may have been. So what should be, we be familiar with, with that contract? What clauses? Like I, I've heard you mention in your podcast, the hammer clause, right? What is that and what are some other examples of clauses that we should be familiar with in our contracts? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I wish someone had actually sat down with me and talked about what I need to know about a professional liability policy. And the first thing you need to know is who are you buying this from? Are you buying it from a carrier that has money and is safe? Or are you buying it from a fly-by-night? You need to make sure that three years from now, when you dust the cobwebs off the policy, that that company is still going to be around. And I can say over the past two or three years, there have been a number of companies, not a lot, but, but enough to cause worry where the carriers have gone under. And some of the carriers were at what are called admitted carriers. So there's a state guarantee fund to take some of the edge off. It won't pay, you know, 100 cents on the dollar, but it may pay 30 or 40 cents. So there's still some money left over. And there are other carriers that were what are considered non-admitted carriers, which means there's no access to a guarantee fund, which means when they go out of business, you're toast. There's nothing left for you. So the first thing you want to know is what is the financial solvency or stability of the carrier? Number two is 
what kind of policy do you have? Is it, and the two common ones are occurrence and claims made. Occurrence and claims made. So occurrence is not particularly common, but it is actually common in New York where, where you, where your practice is based. Occurrence means that if you purchase your coverage and it's labeled as occurrence, you can then go about your business and not make any more premium payments ever. And if you are sued five years later for that case, that case is covered. That's an occurrence policy. Claims made is less expensive, at least initially, and has greater requirements. If, for example, you have a claims made policy and you perform a case tomorrow and then you're sued five years later, you will have needed to have paid into that policy from the beginning until the date that a claim is made against you, hence the name claims made. So there are two very different types of policies. You would think, well, God, I, everybody would want occurrence, but occurrence is hard to find. Many carriers don't sell it, and if they do, it's quite expensive. Uh, for the most part, most people across the country get claims-made uh, coverage, and there are some details you have to pay attention to. For example, when you retire, you need to make sure that there's a mechanism to keep the policy active if you get sued after you retire. The last thing you want to see two years into your retirement is a love letter from an attorney talking about how you're the worst surgeon on the planet. We're going to take all your money and sue you to the end of the earth. If, if that were to happen, you would hope to have the type of coverage that that outlasts the policies. That's called tail coverage. That's getting into the weeds uh, a little bit. The third big thing is, well, what are your limits? Uh, most people in most practices across the country have what are known as one and three million dollar limits. One million per claim, three million in total aggregate claims. So if you got sued three times in a year, it would keep paying up to three million dollars. Some states require a little bit more money. In New York, many people have a bit more than $2 million. Um, other places um, like Dade County in Florida, because professional liability coverage is so expensive, they may end up with a $250,000 policy. A lot of people have a million dollars in Dade County, but it's not surprising to find $250,000 policy. You, you got to know that. And then there are lesser known details about the policy. To me, still important, but buried in the deeper fine print. One is, is it a consent to settle policy? Consent to settle, what is that? It means that you, the doctor, as the insured, have the right to tell the carrier to settle the policy. Or put a different way, the carrier does not have the right to settle the policy without your permission. So if the carrier says, look, we can make this go away for $25,000, we just need you to sign on the dotted line. If you have a consent to settle policy, you can say no. So why would a doctor say no? It's 25 grand, you'd be done with it. Well, the doctor may believe that he was in the right. Number two is that if the carrier makes the payment, that's reportable to the National Practitioner Data Bank. The doctor may, for very good reasons, not want to be a line item in the data bank. So consent to settle is an important clause to see, do you have it or don't you have it in your policy? The final thing that we'll talk about is what you alluded to, namely the hammer clause. The hammer clause 
is what is used to make people, make doctors reasonable. If, for example, the carrier says, I know we've got a consent to settle policy, but I'm hoping you'll be reasonable and allow us to get this settled for $25,000. It's such a tiny amount. It really won't impact your record badly. Yes, I know you'll be in the National Practitioner Data Bank, but come on, it's only $25,000. Everybody will know this was a nuisance settlement. The doctor says, no, no, a thousand times no. Then they'll say, well, in your particular policy, we have something called a hammer clause. What's a hammer clause? And by the way, it's not called a hammer clause. It's just, <laughs> it's what we've called it. It basically says that if the carrier says that it can settle for $25,000 and you ultimately go to court and it set, and the jury comes back and says $100,000, then you individually are on the hook for the overage. You, the doctor, on the hook for the overage. So what do I mean by that? In our example... We're talking about could have been settled for $25,000, at least in the carrier's eyes. You said no because you were using your consent to settle clause. Went to court, you had a bad day, you lost $100,000. That means the carrier will write the check for $25,000, exactly what they said they could settle it for. And then you're on the hook for the overage, in this case, $75,000. So these are the these are the things to think if about. If you're right, do they pay you the $25,000 that they no longer have to pay? <laughs> Wouldn't that be if great? They're, if they're hedging, then there should be like an over-under on that and they should have to pay you. because I want right. to live in your world. I like that world. <laughs> That's a great world to live in. So one day we'll get to that. I think right now it's probably a challenge. Can you elaborate a little more on the National Practitioner Data Bank? Because I think a lot of us live in fear. It's like your permanent record. Right, like, oh, if I get caught in high school doing X, it's going to go on my permanent record. Right, I feel like the National uh, Practitioner Data Bank is is used a bit like a boogeyman. How? What is it, and how is it actually used? So let's talk about the data bank's origin story. I don't know if this is true. I think it's true because it came into being, I believe, around the time of the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act. There was, I'm embarrassed to say, a neurosurgery resident. I believe his name was Swango, and he was an intern. And I want to say it was in uh, Columbus, Ohio, but I, a lot of this I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, patients were dying on his watch. So many patients died, they used to, they nicknamed him Double O Swango, licensed to kill. To make a long story short, they fired him. The, the, uh, the program fired him because they didn't want him around. They couldn't prove that he was doing anything, but there was, it was just, quite a coincidence that a lot of people ended up being dead when he was around. And then he worked his way to a family practice program where people died. And then finally, I think, he, I think he spent some time in prison in between and then got out and ended up at Stony Brook where, again, more people were dying. So finally- Long Island. Long Island. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, <laughs> the, the program, um, the, the department chairman called the other places where Swango had worked and found that, yeah, you know, we had a lot of dead people too. <laughs> so I think he called um, some of the investigators, either state police, federal police, I cannot recall exactly. But ultimately, they were able to get him convicted for murder, intent to kill murder. And so what was the story behind this and how does the databank play into this? 
he was able to migrate from one state to another undetected, even though the people at one institution knew what a horrible practitioner he was. He surfaced in other locations and was able to do exactly what he did previously. Multiple states, bad outcomes. The purpose of the data bank, among other things, was to serve as a repository to keep bad doctors from moving from state to state and starting fresh, meaning institutions should have access to information about the track record for a particular doctor. So professional liability plays into this. If you are sued and payment is made on your behalf by an insurance company, doesn't matter whether it's a dollar or a million dollars, you become a line item in the data bank. It's not uncommon to be in the data bank. I last checked a couple of years ago and there were close to 300,000 healthcare providers in the data bank, which means that over time, there's a likelihood that a carrier will make a payment on your behalf and you'll end up in the data bank. Now, it's interesting. There are strategies that can be used to avoid being a line item in the data bank, to avoid being a line item in the data bank. So, for example, um, if you make payment out of your own pocket and the carrier doesn't pay, so let's say it's a low value claim, a nuisance settlement. Let's say it's 12 grand. Then you have to decide, well, God, do I want to pay it out of my own pocket or just let the carrier do it? The choice will deliver two outcomes, two different outcomes vis-a-vis the data bank. If you pay out of your own pocket, you avoid the data bank. If the carrier makes the payment, then you go into the data bank. And there are other strategies that can be used to try and avoid reporting the data bank. But to your point, Yes, if you end up in the data bank, um, you're in a lot of good company. So many doctors are in there. Now, I don't want to make it sound like it's not a big deal. If if you've settled a, a number of claims or even a single high dollar claim, it can be used by a carrier to either deny future coverage, to non-renew, to increase your premiums, uh, to make it harder to credential make it harder to find a job. So I, I want to be clear that if you have bad luck and three cases have been settled on your behalf by a carrier, and one of them, for example, is a million dollars, you may have a harder time finding reasonably priced coverage down the road. So my general guidance is, is if you can avoid being named in a uh, in the data bank, you're, you probably should should do that. You should avoid being named. But sometimes you don't have a choice. Uh, I mean, the last, the reason you purchase professional liability coverage is to avoid losing your nest egg. So let me give you an example of how the how litigation can sometimes be thought of as a chess match. Let's assume that you believe that what you did was in the right, that your treatment was good, but the person who you took care of has significant injuries and will be sympathetic to a jury. Meaning you did everything right, but there's no doubt the patient appears to have been injured and it wouldn't be a tremendous leap for the jury to conclude that you did it and this patient's treatment plan may be $10 million over a lifetime. So the the question is, do you roll over and give policy limits a million dollars now or do you roll the dice and go to court? Now, if you go to court, the outcome will be a binary one. You either win or you lose. And if you win, you will owe nothing. 
If you lose, you could lose big. You could lose up to $10 million. Now, imagine you're at the tail end of your career. Do you really want to risk your house, your nest egg, and everything else? The answer is no. So the question is, how do you thread that needle? There is something called a high-low agreement, high-low agreement, which tries to find a path to allow you to have your day in court. Let the jury make a determination as to whether there's liability or not. But following that, let's get the jury out of the equation and they will not rule on how much money is owed to any party. Let me give an example here. um, Cerebral palsy, challenging case. You've got a baby with a life care plan that could run into the millions of dollars. Very sympathetic to a jury. And it could very well be that the allegation is you didn't deliver the baby fast enough. Now, many people believe that cerebral palsy is a fait accompli, that it happened in the uterus well before birth. And it doesn't matter whether you uh, quickly delivered the baby or not, the outcome would be the same. That's not always the case, but it is frequently the case, meaning that you could not have changed the outcome. And if that's the case, you probably followed the standard of care. So here's the challenge. You want to be able to tell the jury you followed the standard of care, but if the jury doesn't buy your story, you don't want to end up with a $10 million (laughs) judgment against you. So what do you do? You, You see whether you can negotiate the two attorneys something called a high-low agreement. So the before picture, $0 to $10 million. With a high-low agreement, there's a side agreement, meaning that each side is taking risk and everybody will walk away in a better situation than they could other, than the worst-case situation. So instead of it being zero and $10 million, it may be 100,000 and a million or policy limits. If the jury comes back and says, you, the doctor, prevailed, you win. Instead of you owing nothing to the plaintiff with the $100,000, $1 million side agreement, you owe them something. Your carrier needs to pay them $100,000. So the attorney doesn't lose everything. He still can recoup some of his cost. Uh, Conversely, and this is where the doctor benefits, if the jury comes back and says, you, the doctor, lose, pay up $10 million, the only part that Um, make the only part that the doctor needs to listen to is the doctor lost, but he doesn't have to pay $10 million. He just needs to pony up the high end of the high-low agreement, which would be $1 million. So that's within policy limits. The doctor was able to have his day in court, did not put his nest egg at risk, and each side gets a chance to see what the jury would say, but the jury's only determining liability or no liability they're not really weighing in on the, um, the monetary damages. This has very little to do with practice medicine, and this has a lot to do with gambling. This sounds like gambling. This doesn't sound like <laughs> making sure doctors are practicing good and safe medicine. This Welcome to my world. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it is. is. Ridiculous. I mean, our medical legal system, once you finally see what it is, once you, I mean, yes, there are, there are plaintiff attorneys that um, are looking to do justice, but by and large, it really is about the money. I, I don't mean that in a, a horribly disparaging way. I'm just describing the reality. And that's not just a guess. I know that because we worked with a, an academic who did a survey of plaintiff attorneys just to ask 
what is the likelihood that you'll take on this particular case? And so <laughs> one of the examples was, here's a case that will net you $25,000 and it's a 99% likelihood you will prevail. Almost nobody took that. No, no seasoned professional liability carrier took that case because they believe you still have to invest a lot of money to make any case go. And in their minds, that was a money loser. What we learned is that the threshold for a seasoned MedMal attorney taking a case is about a quarter of a million dollars. And even then, they have to have a really high likelihood that they're going to prevail. If the odds of prevailing start going down, they need to see more and more money. And so in a sense, it's the expected value of their investment, if you will, because they know they got to put money to make into this to make money. But yes, precisely to your point, there is a healthy amount of I don't know if gambling is the right word, but we're not really talking about patient safety here. We're talking about what is the mechanism to extract cash to a patient who happens to be injured where the doctor may or may not have violated the standard of care. Can you prove a case to the jury and get them to believe the doctor violated the standard of care and money is owed to him or her? Yeah, keeping in mind that the jury is not medical professionals. The jury is... Uh, you know who are, who is it that you're that you need to convince? So if it's a case where you're tugging on a lot of heartstrings, you're more likely to convince them, even if the medicine was to the standard of care. Like that's going to change the the odds. I try and tell all that, and they say, "Well, I'll roll my dice in court." You know, roll the dice in court. Surely, a jury will understand my side of the story. But remember, twelve jurors set O.J. Simpson free. Now, <laughs> I, I'm not saying whether he was guilty or not, but. He didn't look. He didn't look <laughs> innocent at the time, and ultimately he was convicted during a second trial. My, my larger point is that medicine is complicated and complex. It's hard enough to explain the nuances of neurosurgery to a cardiologist. It's hard enough to explain the nuances of of cardiology to a neurosurgeon. We live in our bubbles, and we're pretty good at what we do. But it's already difficult enough to explain what one specialty does to another specialty. Now imagine trying to explain it to a smart non-medical professional. Now imagine explaining it to someone who couldn't get out of jury duty. <laughs> and by the way, I was one of those people. So I, so I served, um, I thought that I would be able to get out of jury duty. I was both an MD and a JD. So I checked both boxes for an undesirable in a jury pool. And this was a criminal case. So I just figured I'd show up and just you know, say this is what I do. And I thought I'd be eating lunch um, and back to work <laughs> the same day. Nope, I had a pulse and um, I was there for a week. So I got a chance to see what it's like uh, in a jury in a criminal case. And when you get an idea as to how cases are deliberated, it's very sobering. Now imagine what it's like when you're dealing with highly technical concept. You have expert witnesses opining on the standard of care, particularly if it's controversial. I mean, not everything that we do is accepted as gospel by, by our colleagues. You know, sometimes we sit on two sides of a fence. How is a jury supposed to make heads or tails out of it? Well, the point is they, they can't, but they will. At the end of the day, there's always a decision that'll be rendered and it may not be particularly fair or just. Now, let's add some insult to that injury. How long does it take for a typical 
MedMal case to work its way through the system. Well, it's a minimum of two years. Some cases last five years. I can honestly say that we've had a recent case that took place where the medical event took place last century. It's now 2020. (laughs) This was in the late 90s. So yes, it was last century and it still hasn't achieved its final you know, final adjudication. It's still percolating in appeals or or wherever it it lives. That's a case that should have gone away a long time ago. Remember, this is part one of two. So stay tuned as the second half will air next week. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.